Uh, that's part of our life as a church, and I, I hope you hear in, in the preaching of God's Word our commitment to really connect you guys with the Word of God. I, I, I don't want to build a church, we don't want to build a church where you merely enjoy the preaching of a pastor or the structure of a church. We want you to understand that the Word of God is what's behind our preaching, it's what's behind our life. And if, and if I have not and we have not directed you to the Word, so at the end of the day you're in the Word, seeing God's truth and living by it, then we have failed. Uh, so we want to do that, and part of doing that is having the Bible in front of you as you go. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and I'm sure uh, one of the ushers at the back will get you one. We have some few Bibles. Anyone need a Bible? Just put your hand up. We will get one for you. Uh, and you can also watch it here. We're continuing our series in the Psalms, the Songs of Ascents. Uh, these Psalms uh, in the middle, more or less, of the, the Psalms in Scripture. These songs that were sung by God's people on the journey to Jerusalem. And uh, they're songs full of, first off, faith in God. All the Psalms, you'll see uh, uh, faith in God happening no matter what. And the Psalms cover the whole range of human experience, as well as these songs of ascents. Uh, and we're making our way through these wonderful songs that, that uh, really instruct us and inspire us on our journey. Though we're not going to physical ancient Jerusalem, uh, all believers are on a journey in a world that is not really our home uh, to our ultimate home, which is to be with God in His new creation. And so these Psalms instruct us and they inspire us in the process, in the journey. Uh, and they're full of wonderful truths about, about this journey and about our destination and about God. This Psalm is, uh, is the third to last in the series, so we're almost finishing the series. And it is probably the most challenging psalm uh, to, to preach in some ways, at least challenging to understand it in a way that, that is clear uh, and, and in a way that I can convey it. So i uh, just telling you up front, I've labored hard over this one, uh, sought the Lord and wrestled and, and, and also complained. Uh, Lord, forgive me. He does. I'm glad for that in Christ. Uh, but just said, Lord, why this week? <laughs> why do I have to have Psalm 132 this week? It was a crazy week. But, but uh, I can tell you that uh, I've learned so much, and I'm so glad for the labor uh, in this psalm. I, I trust that I can serve you um, in God's Word. And again, point your attention to Him. I want to give you some background, though, because there's a lot going on in this psalm. And so before we read it, I want to give you some background so as we read it, you can fully appreciate it. And then I will go on and, and uh, explain it and and um, preach it as well. But to give you some background that will help in understanding this psalm and enjoying it even as we read it. Uh, this psalm speaks of David and his oath to build a house for God. It also talks about God's oath, more importantly than David's oath, God's oath to, uh, to work through the line of David. And, and it can be confusing because you, as you read through the psalm, you see this promise to David to have a king on the throne, but then you see David's promise to build a house for God. And, 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 it, and it can seem like, well, what's going on here? Is, is the psalmist confused and kind of, you know, lost his train of thought partway through? You know, first he's talking about David building a house, then God's oath to have a king, and how are they related? And, and, and so I want to help you up front before we read to understand that. First, we need to understand that there's this theme throughout Scripture, this theme throughout Scripture of God's dwelling place. It runs throughout Scripture. The theme of the temple. The temple was the place of God's presence. But the, the temple, when actually it was built, is not the only time in Scripture we see this picture of a place of God's dwelling. Uh, there's actually this, this theme of the place of God's dwelling starts in the very beginning of Scripture. Some would argue even that the creation itself in its entirety is to be a place of, the te- of God's presence. But in particular, he creates man, male and female, and he creates this garden for them to live in. And, and they're to be in this garden, and they're to, to be, at, actually, Adam himself with Eve, with him, is to be a king of sorts in that garden. Uh, the garden in Scripture, the Garden of Eden, often we think of like an English garden or, or you know, a French garden or something. That's not really what the word is. It's really a royal garden uh, that, that it's speaking of, this place of Paradise comes from that word. This royal garden, this, uh, this garden where kings would dwell. 
And so in the Garden of Eden, the idea is that the king, Adam himself, is there in this place. And as we read the story in the beginning, we see that God would, would walk with him in the cool of the day. That's actually when he gets called to account. And so this garden was a place where God dwelt, where he walked with man. And God had told the man to be fruitful and multiply, that he was from this garden to extend his reign, to extend even the garden itself to fill the whole earth. He was to have dominion over the whole earth. So the whole earth was to be a place of God's presence through the reign of Adam. But we know the story that Adam failed. He failed in faith and obedience. And the garden was... uh, They were cast out of the garden, out of this place. And there were two cherubim, by the way. It says just cherubim in the plural, but probably two cherubim put as a guard to the entrance of that garden. That's going to be important later. These two cherubim, thinking later, for those of you who know your Bible stories, there's two cherubim somewhere else in Scripture. We'll get to that. Um, The temple itself, the Ark of the Covenant, there's two cherubim, two mighty angels guarding that Holy of Holies, just like the garden. So we see that theme. So there's a theme of the temple there in the garden, the theme of, uh, of the temple under David's reign. And then at the end of Scripture as well, we see this theme of the temple, this new heaven and this new earth that's created. And Jerusalem comes down out of the sky, and Jerusalem's dimensions in the, Re- the book of Revelation are 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000 stadia. Those are, it's a, a Latin length. It's basically two paces, uh, but it's big. It's huge. The city itself, but it's cubical. And if you read the Bible story, the temple itself, the Holy of Holies, the place inside the temple that was lined with gold was a cube. The place of God's presence was this perfect cube, this glorious cube. And so in Revelation, when it's written, God knows what He's doing, John knows what He's doing, to say the new Jerusalem, the city itself, and really the whole creation will be the Holy of Holies. God Himself will dwell with man without Without sin, without a veil, without a curtain, God Himself will dwell with man. So there's this theme of the temple throughout Scripture. And there's the theme of the king throughout Scripture, starting with Adam, who was to be king over the garden, and then going to David, who was to be a king. And he was to be a king who presided over the kingdom of Israel with the temple at the center. The purpose, ultimately, of his kingship is to provide a place and peace for God to dwell amidst His people. The point of His kingship was the presence of God amidst His people. We know that. We'll we'll talk about this. He ultimately failed. The ultimate king comes in the end to establish His kingdom, His reign, and bring the presence of God ultimately in the new Jerusalem. So we just covered a huge amount, <laughs> huge amount of biblical truth, biblical theology. But I, I want to give that to you so as we go to read this psalm, you won't be like I was on Tuesday morning saying, what in the world is this talking about? That you will be able to appreciate the, the weaving together of all these truths in this glorious psalm that, that the Old Testament people of God, I think, would have understood uh, because of their background. And we can, as we get that background and we have the benefit of seeing the fulfillment in Christ we can benefit from it. This is the very Word of God, so let's pray and ask Him to speak to us through His Word and change our lives for our joy and His glory. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. You are an amazing God, a creative God, a glorious God. God, You have woven through time these key themes and given us this picture that's glorious. And we thank You for the work of Christ and the fulfillment of these things. Lord, I believe you really want to speak to us through this psalm and change our lives to teach us and instruct us and empower and commission us in the gospel of grace. So we ask you to do that as we read your word and look at it this morning. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's start Psalm 132, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. 
You in the ark of Your might. Let Your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let Your saints shout for joy. For the sake of Your servant David, do not turn away the face of Your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which He will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Psalm 132, 1-18. God's Word. We're going to divide this psalm up into two sections, and maybe you saw this as we went along. We're going to talk about first David's oath. David, uh, David's oath is, is given in the beginning, and then the things that follow with that. And then we're going to talk about God's oath and the things that follow with God's oath. And then we're going to talk about the fulfillment, ultimately, of these oaths. So we'll look here at, at David's oath, God's oath. And I believe through this we will learn we will learn that there is a call in this psalm to us to treasure and pursue the ultimate blessing of God's presence. To treasure and pursue the ultimate blessing of God's presence through His chosen King. So a, a way to summarize this psalm and to apply it to our lives. To treasure and pursue the ultimate blessing of God's presence through His chosen King. The psalmist starts out, calling upon God to remember, O Lord, in David's favor or for David's sake, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. The psalmist is calling God to remember David's hardships and remember the oath to, to look upon David in his heart. David was a man who endured trials. Do you know the story of David? He was a man who endured trials. He was a man who fundamentally, at the, at the core of who he was, desired to walk with God. Desired to be close to God. Even when he was at his worst and repenting of it, Psalm 51, we see that the, the, really the, the thing that he was most concerned about that is that God would take His Holy Spirit from him. And his plea was, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Don't take your spirit from me. I want to stay close to you. I want to be with you. And David wanted to be close to the Lord and he wanted, he wanted God to be magnified. He wanted others, he wanted God's people to be close to the Lord. And God perhaps built this in him as a young man. He was the youngest of eight brothers. The youngest of eight brothers. Any younger brothers here? You know what it is to be a younger brother? It can be a tough thing to be a younger brother, especially if you're the last of eight. And if you read through the story of David's life, you'll see that it wasn't easy for David necessarily. Uh, his, brothers, uh, his brothers did not necessarily make it easy for him. And, and he grew up as the youngest of eight. He was not a, a great man uh, that, that he, naturally you would look on and say, well, this must be the king. Um, he, was the, he was the lesser, the younger of eight brothers. Grew up in their shadow. But that was really nothing compared to what happened later in his life. God uh, chose him as the king. God chose him to be king. And, and there was already a king in place when he was chosen, a king named Saul. And Saul is a king who was actually a great man in many ways. Uh, but there was a fundamental difference between Saul. Saul's eyes were on people more than God. David's eyes were on God and then people. And God chose David and raised him up, and Saul hated David. He hated him without cause, for David never did anything to usurp Saul. Even though he was anointed, he was chosen as the next king, he never did anything but support Saul and, and seek to make Saul successful. But Saul hated David and pursued him and tried to kill him. And David had to flee from Saul and live in caves and wander here and there. And, and, and Saul took 
uh, took his, David's wife, who was Saul's daughter, from him. He was already married, took his wife from him, exiled. David had to flee, and he, he endured many trials. But his, his chief concern continued to be his walk with God and nearness to the Lord. He was eventually uh, made king, and his desire, even as king, was, was, was for the Lord. It was for the Lord, not for political gain, not for power, not for prestige, but ultimately for the Lord. Yes, he was a man. Yes, he struggled. Yes, he sinned very seriously. But his life was characterized by a heart for God. He loved to be with the Lord. He wanted the Lord's purposes accomplished in and through his reign. The point of David's reign, the chief desire of David, and the point of his reign is that God's presence would abide amidst his people. God's presence would abide amidst His people. David's reign was ultimately to provide for and preside over God Himself dwelling amidst His people. That's important to understand. That's important to understand as we read the storyline in the Old Testament of David's reign. And you can see it. You can see it as you read the storyline that, that David comes in and, and he start, starts to uh, reign as king. And he deals with his enemies. He has a lot of enemies. He has hardships. He endures a lot of hardships. There are enemies without, the the Philistines, warring against Israel, and other enemies as well. There are enemies within. And David uh, is a warrior. He has to fight these enemies. But it says in Scripture that once the Lord, it says more or less, the Lord granted peace, and David wanted to build a house for the Lord. It's an interesting statement there in, in, um, I think, both in 1 Kings and and, uh, Chronicles. As soon as there was peace established, the very next thing on David's agenda was to establish a house for the Lord. And what that's saying is that David's point was not mere peace. His, his point of his reign was not power. It was not peace. The point of his reign was to establish peace so that God could come and dwell amidst His people and His people would enjoy that peace. The point of his reign was the presence of God through the temple among His people. And so that's why here, as the, as the psalmist talks about the presence of God and the reign of the king, they're, they're in the same psalm together because the psalmist understood, David, I think, understood, actually Solomon and all the other kings were to understand this too because this psalm is not only written perhaps for the celebration under Solomon, but also for all the other kings and all the people of God to read and recognize that they're, they're, the reigns of all these kings had as their focal point the presence of God with His people. That's the point. And that's why they're married together in this psalm. Where this psalm can at the same time say, Oh God, preserve the kingship. Oh God, dwell with Your people because they're together. The purpose of the reign of the king ultimately was to be a sub-king under the Lord as king as He manifested His presence in and among His people. And this point, as I've said, starts right in the Garden of Eden. It's realized to a degree under David, fulfilled ultimately under the chosen king. David's heart was for the presence of the Lord. Look at his vow. Look at his vow. Can you imagine making a vow like this to the Lord? I will not enter my house or get into my bed or I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David's saying, I will not enjoy a dwelling place, a resting place myself until the Lord has a resting place. The, the presence of God amidst His people is more important to me than the presence of my head amidst my pillows. I don't, I don't prioritize uh, my comfort, my dwelling place ahead of the Lord. His dwelling place is my passion. That's what David's saying here. Now, I think that there's some hyperbole in his vow in this psalm. Um, I don't think you can, can purposely not sleep uh, for, throughout your lifetime, but it's an expression of David's passion, his love for the presence of God, his desire for the fame of God and the good of God's people, his passion to see a house built for the Lord so that the Lord would be the center of His reign. The temple would be the center. And God's people would be there. God would dwell amongst them and be with them. This was His grand passion in His life. He wanted the presence of God to abide with His people. And that was the point of His reign. That's what He wanted. There's there's an amazing passion for the presence of God in these statements in this psalm. 
And as I read that, I find it amazingly inspiring to look at David's heart, but I also find it tremendously convicting. Because I know for me that often the presence of my head amidst my pillows is more than important to me than the presence of God amidst His people. My personal comfort often is far ahead of God's presence amidst His people, God dwelling with His people. It's convicting. It's convicting to look at David's passion. And though I recognize that, you know, certainly we should recognize David is a unique individual. None of us are going to be, ever, ever will be King David. None of us will ever be like him. He is a unique person in salvation history. And we have to tread carefully when we compare ourselves to these key individuals because they stand uniquely in salvation history. But we also have to recognize that they are still to stand as examples to us. And so when we look at David, it is fitting for us to say, I'm convicted. By this man and his life and his passion for God, for God's presence amidst his people and all that that means. We'll, we'll touch on that a little more as we go. As we go along and think through how we can, how we can think in light of David's passion and, and by the grace of God as we know the God that David knows have the same passion. The psalm continues. It says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. If you go back and look at the story of the, of the temple and of the ark, the ark of the covenant. I think we have a picture to show uh, of the ark here. Uh, the ark of the covenant was this uh, really ornate box, uh, about four feet long, two feet by two feet or so, and uh, covered with gold. And on top of it are two cherubim. Two mighty angels guarding the presence of God, just like in the Garden of Eden. This ark represented the, the very presence of God. In it were the, the tablets that Moses had written on. God had written on for Moses with the Ten Commandments. I think the uh, staff, Aaron's uh, staff that had blossomed, and you can read about that. can't cover that now. But, but this, this ark was a really important aspect of the worship of God's people. It represented the very presence of God. It's called the footstool of God. What's a footstool? It's a stool you put your foot on, right? Uh, it's something you rest your feet on. And the picture there is that God is sitting on a throne in heaven over the entire universe, and He's putting His feet on this stool called the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, this is where God's presence touches the earth. This is where we experience and know the infinitely glorious One at the, at the place of this Ark. This is the presence of God amidst us. And this Ark was to be in the Holy of Holies, in this cubicle place, first in the tabernacle, then later in the temple. But when David came to the throne, the ark was not in the tabernacle. It was not in the temple. The temple hadn't been built. The ark was down the roadways in this place at the fields of Jaar, in this region of Ephrathah. And so, in the psalm here, it's recounting David's experience. And in a sense, putting words in David's mouth, they, they may be, it may have been Solomon was part of penning this, we don't know for sure, but, but it says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jaar, that, 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 that it is the Ark of the Covenant. And we know it's been here, and we've heard of it, and now it's coming to the temple. It's coming in, and if you read the story, they, they, they go and they take the Ark, and they bring it in, and they put it in the tabernacle in the city of Jerusalem. And so the, these words are, in a sense, echoing David's words. We, we heard of it in Ephrathah. The, the, we know the ark is there. We found it in the fields of Jar. We found the ark. And we get to bring it into the city. We get to bring it in and have it be amidst God's people. And, and then the, in their sentiment, let us go to His dwelling place. Let us worship at His footstool. The passion of David and his companions for the presence of God is expressed in this psalm. There's this excitement, this joy. And do you guys know the story of David as the ark came in? And, and what went on? And you can read about it. Um, you can read about it in 2 Samuel 6, I believe it is. And, and you can turn there. As I, I'm just going to glance over that section quickly. But, but as they brought in the ark, they, they, they would take, I think it was six steps, and offer animal sacrifices to the Lord, recognizing that God is holy. And they are sinful people. They cannot presume on the presence of God. The whole temple itself is, is built 
uh, in such a way the tabernacle as well, the tent that was the temporary place of, of God, is built, uh, and the temple itself is built around the idea of God's presence. And, and there are a lot of articles in there. Maybe we, someday we can do a series on the temple and what everything means. Uh, but, but very importantly, probably perhaps most importantly to the presence of God, was that outside the, the tabernacle in the temple was an altar, a place where animals were sacrificed, where blood was shed. Because God demanded this, and, and it speaks to this truth, that God is holy. And we cannot presume on the presence of God. We are sinners. All of us. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all do. We pre- like to pretend that we don't. We like to pretend that we somehow have a ticket to the presence of God. That we're good enough to get into heaven. And you might be really good. You might be way better than me. You probably are. Um, from what I know of myself, you're probably way better than me. But compared to the goodness and glory of God, the perfection shown in Jesus Christ and His perfect love for God and for others, you fall far, far short. We all do. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and justice, holy justice, demands God to deal with sin. And he, and he must deal justly with sin. He cannot ignore it. He's holy. He's good. He's just. And the wages of sin is death. Ultimately, that death is eternal separation from God. Temporal and eternal. It's to be exiled, to be put away from the presence of God. And there is nothing more horrific than to be exiled, to be put away from God and His goodness. There's, there's no goodness left. Only horror. Only exile. The, the whole idea that you know, me, and my, me and my boys were going to go to hell and have a good time together. No, you're not. No, we won't. I was there one day and I said things like that. To be away from goodness, to be away from the glory of God is a horrible thing. You don't want to go there. You enjoy the goodness of God now in this time because He loves you and His kindness is meant to lead to repentance. He's good to you to show that He's good and He's worth turning to, worth turning away from all that other stuff to Him. So turn. He invites us. He's provided for us. That's what the ark, that's what the altar meant. That there is an animal sacrifice. There's a sacrifice put in your place to pay for your sins so you can enter in. As you trust Him, as you believe in that sacrifice, ultimately that sacrifice looks forward to the ultimate sacrifice of God's Son Himself for you. So you can enter in. That's what God calls us, to recognize that and to come into His presence. He loves us. Isn't it amazing? This infinite holy God wants us with Him. David understood this and had a passion for the Lord. So as this ark came into the, into the city, they took six steps and they offered animal sacrifices recognizing they will not presume on the presence of a holy God. And they also, they also uh, played trumpets and there were shouts of joy. And David was wearing, as he, as he led the procession, as the king, Think of again the, the garden king, the ultimate king, David the king. He led this procession wearing priestly, a priestly garment. Uh, no, it wasn't his underwear. Sometimes people talk about David was dancing in his underwear. He, it was not. It was a priestly garment, a linen garment with an ephod on it, which was a priestly outfit. And he was leading his people uh, in, in preparing for, celebrating, worshiping the God, the eternal glorious God who is now going to abide with him, the God that he loved. And it says that he danced with all his might. He danced with all his might. This is, the, this is the king. Can you see President Obama dancing with all his might in, in a linen garment before us? We don't think of, of presidents and kings doing such things. But David's passion for the presence of God, his understanding of the importance of the presence of God amidst his people, his understanding of all that this meant, of the holiness of God, the glory of God, caused him to dance with all his might before the Lord. It was worship and it was leading God's people in expressing their worship and their joy before the Lord. Side point to that as you read the story is his wife that was Saul's daughter rejected him, uh, ridiculed him for doing that. Sadly, she was, ended up being like her father, eyes on man rather than God. And therefore said, this is ridiculous. And we'll always think it's ridiculous to be expressive in worship if our eyes are on man instead of God. So 
just a, a side note from me, that helped free me up from worrying about what people are going to think when I do this, uh, recognizing, you know what, I do care about what they think, but more so I care about my God and that he loves us, calls us into worship. It's a holy honor. So lifting the hands is appropriate. David understood the, the, the wonder of God being with him and he danced with all his might. Have you ever danced with all your might? I don't know if I've ever danced with all my might. I've danced. I've enjoyed dancing. Just got to enjoy dancing at, a, at a Jim and Susanna Brown's wedding last Saturday. It was a lot of fun dancing. Um, maybe some of us danced with all our might. Um, but it was, it was wonderful and it's fitting to dance at a wedding, by the way. Uh, it's a celebration. But David's dance outdid anything you'll ever see at a wedding. He danced, the king danced with all his might because God was coming into the the midst of his people. God was now going to dwell through the temple, through the ark with his people. He understood the priority in his reign of the presence of God. And, And this psalm is to be instructive for the kings that were to follow David. Now Solomon understood this as well. Solomon knew, and actually the, the very words in verses 8-10 through 10 are used by Solomon in Second Chronicles 7. You can jump over there if you know where that is. Uh, look in your table of contents. Second Chronicles 7. We're, I'm just going to go through it quickly, but Solomon understood it and used these very words as well. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And, and as Solomon prayed that, it says in verse 1 of chapter 7, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of God filled the temple in a manifest way that they could, they could tell He was there. Now that's a, an aspect to the presence of God. There's a, there's a subjective aspect to the presence of God. There's an objective a- aspect too. There's the truth of God, the gospel uh, that, that we live in. Those are the objective things we stand on. But there's a subjective aspect when God visits with us where we experience we experience something in our hearts. There's, there's fresh faith. There's fresh repentance. There's fresh joy as we look at the objective truths. And the glory of God comes and, and lives amongst us. And we experience that here Sunday after Sunday. Now it's not as dramatic as what went on here. There's actually, I believe, was a cloud filled the temple. And it says, And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Our covenant God dwells with us now in the temple. What a scene! As this temple is dedicated after the reign of David. And this was to be instructive again for all subsequent kings and instructive for us. Let's continue in the psalm. There's another half. We talked about David's oath and what follows from that. And then we see in verse 11, it says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath. The psalmist is recounting David's oath and his desire and the purpose of his reign. And now the psalmist is pointing towards God's oath. The psalmist, the whole point here, remember these are songs sung on the journey to Jerusalem. And, and the whole point here is to instruct God's people and probably instruct the kings as well about what Jerusalem is all about, what the kingdom is all about, what the purpose of the kingship is about. It's about the presence of God. And that, that, that truth does not merely flow from David's heart for God. That's what the first half is. It ultimately flows from God's heart. It is ultimately true because God Himself has made an oath. Because God has said, I want to dwell with My people. And so that's what the second part is. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which He will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep My covenant and My testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on the throne. God's promise to David was, I will establish your kingship. And I will establish this rule through your sons as they steward the presence of God amidst His people. How do they steward the presence of God? They lead God's people in living in the covenant. And the covenant at that time uh, was the covenant of Moses. 
this covenant, this covenant through Moses that God had delivered them from Egypt. God had acted graciously to deliver them and now they were to put their faith in Him and walk in obedience through the law of Moses. That was the call. And as the king stewarded that, as the king led God's people in obedience in the covenant because of grace, God's presence would continue to abide in Jerusalem. That's the call here. Basically saying, guys, if you're a king, watch your life. Walk in the covenant because you will be leading your people in the blessings of God's presence amidst His people. That's the call. God made this oath. God is the one who wanted to dwell. And He promised this. He promised this. And again, we know this. We know it's His desire because it's woven through the Bible from beginning to end. It's God's desire. Isn't that a glorious thing to think about? If you are a believer, you are here in His presence with His people not merely because you desired it, but ultimately because He desired it. He wants you to be with Him. That is the ground of your confidence, your ultimate confidence. Yes, indeed, you're called to respond. You're called to desire those things. But the ground of your confidence is that He he made an oath to David that was fulfilled in Christ. And He made an oath, in a sense, about having you to be in His presence as His own. That's, where, that's what the psalmist is doing. That This is grounded on the Lord. It is the Lord's desire. He says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And I didn't touch on this, but in both oaths, there's this wonderful blessing that flows from God's presence. The kingdom, the kingdom rightly Uh, rightly established under the king, leads to God's presence amidst his people and glorious blessing to his people. So we see parallel statements in both oaths. It says, Here I will dwell, for I have desired, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will abundantly bless her provisions. That that this kingdom will, will know abundance and blessing. I will satisfy her poor with bread. What a glorious thing. People will be taken care of. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. That, that her priests will, will walk in the truths of salvation in righteousness, it says earlier. Her saints will shout for joy. There's blessing that flows in this kingdom. This is precious to God's people. And as the Old Testament saints recounted these truths, their hearts burn for these things after the heart of David. Burns. Burn that God... That God would reign through His sub-king in such a way that His presence would be established among His people and the blessings would flow. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? In many ways, a tragic story. For all the goodness that they experienced under David in the beginning of Saul's reign, it quickly turned south. Solomon's heart went from the Lord to for, to his wives and foreign gods through his wives and, 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 the, and the reign that was to be in Psalm 132 and promised was not realized for the most part because king after king, not all of them, but many of them, perhaps even most of them, failed. They failed to walk in the heart of David. They failed to walk in the covenant. They failed to steward the presence of God. And God, in His amazing mercy, continued to call them. He sent prophets calling them to repent, to come back, to, to, to value the preciousness of God's presence in His kingdom and the blessings that flow as greater than anything in the earth. But they continued to run after false things. And finally, after 400 years, He said, Enough, I must discipline my children. 400 years of patience. And He sent them into exile. Okay, guys, you want to play the game? I've got to give you what you're asking for. Here's exile. You're going to lose it. You're going to lose all these promises. It was through that discipline, through the horror of that discipline, and there was not only those who were exiled, many were killed. Through the horror of that, they repented. But even then, as they came back, it still was not fulfilled ultimately until later. And that gets us to the most important point, the oath fulfilled. Another heir came to the throne a thousand years after David or so. He too came from a humble beginning. He too endured great affliction in his zeal for the house of God and the reign of the king. But unlike Solomon, unlike David, unlike all the rest, this heir never failed. 
His heart was a heart of faith and perfect obedience and love. He was so faithful. He was so zealous. He loved the presence of God and loved His people so much that His faith and obedience didn't fail even when facing the most horrific torture and death ever, ever, ever possible. Jesus looked at what was ahead of Him, the heir, Jesus Christ. Looked at what was ahead of Him on that cross and it was, it was certainly in terms of physical torture, awful. Awful. People have called it the worst form of death ever, ever uh, constructed, imagined by humanity. But it wasn't just that, as, as awful as that was. It was that on that cross, God's plan was, and His, and His love for His glory, and His love among the Trinity, and His love for His people, and His sure purpose to establish a king and a kingdom that, that stewarded His presence, He had determined that on that cross, that the sins of His people, all who would turn from the foolishness of our sin to the beauty of the King and His kingdom and the presence of God, that all of our sins would be placed on His Son, on that cross. Every single one of them. Every single one of your sins, if you are a believer, past, present, and future, placed on, on Christ. And He suffered the justice of God in your place on that cross. The wrath of God. The holy wrath of God. So all that you deserve to pay for your sins and your rejection of His presence, of His kingdom and His King, was poured out on the Son. Unimaginable. Unimaginable agony. He bled and God died on the cross. Satisfying God's justice. Satisfying all righteousness. Fulfilling the call to be the King He desired. The King who was willing to obey even to death on a cross. And God, God could not stand by and let that just remain. He raised them on the third day. I approve. You have done it. You have done what the king should have done back in the days of Adam, in the days of David. You have done this. You have obeyed and you have, you have accomplished salvation. And I, and I am raising you up now as that king. And, and, and all that trust in you are now forgiven and welcomed into my presence through you. And you are to reign over that kingdom. And Scripture teaches us that Christ now reigns. His reign is now. It will be completed later. He is reigning now, it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, until He has put all His enemies under His feet. Until He has established the peace, just like in the time of David. And He is going to establish this peace. And once that peace is established, the, the presence of God will come down and be with us forever. It will, never, it will never be like it was. It will not fail. It will not be marred by sin. It will not be just a foreshadow. It will be the fulfillment of all this wonderful truth in Scripture and the heart's desire of God's people to be in the presence of God in His kingdom. He'll return. Revelation 22 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb, Christ that Lamb who died for us, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Look in Revelation at the wonderful picture of the presence of God and all the connections in Scripture. What a glorious day. On that day, we will dance with all our mights before the Lord for what He has done and His presence with us. Jesus has fulfilled it. And He is reigning. And He's working now. And the kingdom has come already. Now we live in this age of already and not yet. We live on this journey, remember in the Songs of Ascent, on this journey to our ultimate home, which is that end time home when Christ comes and establishes that kingdom forever. That's our home. Now there's good things here to enjoy and, and, and so forth, but ultimately that's our home. But we must understand that the kingdom is already and not yet. That's the not yet, but it's already. Christ is reigning now. And the kingdom is here now. The king is reigning over and establishing his peace now through his people. And his presence is with us. And, and right now, the church, capital C church, the church throughout history, throughout, throughout the planet, is the place of his kingdom and his presence. And it is through his church, through his people, that he extends his kingdom and his presence. And so we get to enjoy it and taste it now. And that's what Sunday mornings are, are about and all the rest of the mission and life of the church. 
It's about being this place of His kingdom and presence and spreading it. That was the commission that Adam was given. Be fruitful and multiply. Extend this presence. Extend this kingdom. And Christ came to us. And if the bank could come up as we close. Christ came back and, and He established these things. And then what did He say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. I'm the king. I'm the king right now. I reign right now. I'm the king right now. Go therefore. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Go therefore now. Extend the kingdom. Extend the presence of God. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So go and make disciples. Go and make people who have come under the King into the presence of God and are living in that, who then also make disciples. And then he says at the end, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You now experience the presence of God. He is with you. He's with us corporately. And as you bring His kingdom, you are spreading His presence of God because as you make disciples, as you, as, you, as you teach, as we do it as the church together, you extend the kingdom and extend the experience of the presence of God. The presence of Christ with us is our motivation to go and the result of going as well. So this theme goes throughout Scripture. Psalm 132 is a picture. So... Let me just touch on, in closing, some ideas and thoughts about how to do that now. I want us to live for that ultimate home, but I want us to recognize that the kingdom is here now and expanding now, and there's work to do now. He wants to bring the kingdom under the reign and extend it. So just a few things in terms of application. And I really want us to think about how to walk this out. Uh, you don't need to think all of these together and go home this afternoon to accomplish everything I say, but just to, some things to ponder. First, learn to treasure the presence of God above all other things, like David. Learn to treasure the presence of God above all other things, like David. To be with God. To have peace with God. To know that our sins are forgiven. That we're accepted. To keep the Gospel central. To live under the reign of Christ and learn to abide in Him and, and become like Him. To treasure His presence as we walk in those things by grace, above all other things. Now this treasuring only comes as you behold His glory. David had a passion for the presence of God, not because it was just his mere duty, not because he merely understood the Old Testament, because he had beheld the glory of God. He knew God. He saw Him in His glory. Your ability to treasure His presence comes from beholding His glory. That comes as you know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the full manifestation of the glory of God. How do we know Christ? Through the Gospel, through the Word of God, in the power of the Spirit, getting around the people of God. The Word of God, the Gospel, the people of God, this coming together in the power of the Spirit. That's how we learn to treasure and pursue. Secondly, invest in His presence being known by investing in your church. Not the only way, but a chief way. That God expands His reign, that the temple experience of His presence goes out is is through His church and the power of the Gospel. So invest in your church. Invest in coming and attending and worshiping together, using your gifts. The church cannot be the church without you. I'm merely a pastor. Merely. I'm not the church. I don't do the work of the church. I can only do my little part to lead the church. You guys, we together, are the church. Your investment in this church is an expression of your, of your appreciation for the presence of God. So invest. Come on Sundays. Come prepared. Go to small group. Get involved in, in ministries, youth ministry, children's ministry, VBS. Now do that in balance with your other priorities of your personal devotions and family life. But don't pit those things against one another. They're inextricably linked as God makes His presence known in and through the church. Invest in the church. Lastly, work in the harvest to spread His presence. And I touched on that with Matthew 28. We're called to do, to be part of what Adam was called to do, of what David was called to do, what Jesus is now doing through us, of, of being little kings and queens in a sense, princesses and princesses, who, who extend the kingdom, who bring the truth, who love others, who touch others. When, when, you, when you minister to others, 
You bring the presence of God to them. This, this hit me recently, and if I can indulge your, your patience for just going a little longer. Uh, my dad uh, passed last March, and I was down in Florida with, uh, with my, my family. He was vacationing there when he got sick. And, and, um, and, they, and all his, they have all these friends. They all go down to Florida together. So they were all there. And um, it was just a, a joy. It was a very poignant time to be there with my mom and my siblings. And I, God's grace was all over the place. Thank you guys for those who pray. I know many of you prayed. But my point, uh, I was down there and they asked me, would you lead us in a memorial service for your dad? Tough thing to do. But I said, sure. And it was just a very simple thing I did. I just had, took time to remember, uh, to remember the scriptures, to look at the truths of the gospel, and then to remember my dad and the blessing he was, to invite the Lord to be with us. And we had this time of just sharing just about my dad's life. And then um, they, we held hands and came together and prayed and committed my dad to the Lord, uh, understanding his faith in Christ. And, and, uh, and it was a powerful time. But it was something, I think, for many of us, that would just be kind of standard. You know, well, that was a nice time. You know, and, and we're used to that. But one thing that happened as I was there doing this simple leading of this memorial service, people came up to me afterwards and said, I've never had an experience or a memorial service like that. I've never experienced that sort of thing. And, and, it, and it just struck me. Here are all these people. Here are all these people who are interested in the things of God. They may not know Christ, but there's a God-fearing element to their lives. And they just need somebody to, to minister the presence of God in a simple way. And we walk with the presence of God. And we can take it for granted that when we love people, when we speak the truth, when we seek to serve them, God is there with us. And, 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 and He works through us. And people are touched by God. We do in those moments what, what we're called to from Psalm 132. So just call us. I want to encourage us to, to keep our eyes open for opportunities to love someone, to start with a simple act of kindness, just doing something for someone in need, just greeting them, building a friendship, looking to be there in crisis, to minister to them, to minister the presence of God, looking ultimately to bring them the truth of this King who comes to bring us peace in the presence of God. We are very blessed to, to experience the presence of God. Just some ways to apply Psalm 132, this wonderful truth, this truth that we are to treasure and pursue the ultimate blessing of God's presence through His chosen King. If we could just take a minute just to pray and to ask the Lord, Lord, is there one thing one thing in light of Psalm 132 I can do? Is there one truth I can treasure? Is there one action I can walk in, in, in as a result of a truth in light of one, Psalm 132? And then we'll close and worship together. Let me pray and then we'll just do that. Lord, we, we ask You to, to be with us. We thank You. You are. We thank You for Psalm 132 and these truths. And Lord, I, I don't want to just merely explain this psalm. I want You to speak to us and I want for my sake, for all of our sake, for your glory to be changed. Would you change us now as we consider your word, as we hear from you ways to walk it out. For our joy and your glory, for the sake of your presence and your kingdom, we pray. Amen.